The next reading of Holy Scripture comes from Genesis chapter 1, uh, and we're going to read through verse 3 of chapter 2. We'll be focusing today really on verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1 as we we think about this um, text, uh, a step at a time, but... uh, We've got to read more scripture than two verses. That's not, that's not enough. Uh, so we're going to read the whole chapter together. Let's stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. This is God's word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said... Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening 
And there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, (coughs) and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God made man, created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with its seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever by his grace and mercy. May it be preached for you. You may be seated. And as we come to consider this portion of God's word, let us pray for his help. Almighty God, we come to this in in many ways famous portion of scripture that has occupied the hearts and minds of many of your people and, and in fact many of those who are not your people. And even as it may be familiar, we ask that as we come to it today and in weeks before us, that you might astound our hearts anew with truths about who you are and what you have done for us. Might we know your grace and might we know more of your majesty and more of the majesty of the Lord Jesus. 
because of our reflections on these narratives here at the beginning of your holy word. Overcome the deficiencies of the creature, of the preacher. They are many. And bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word to bring forth fruit in our hearts, to love you more, to serve you better. We ask it all in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Perhaps the biggest questions of our day concern identity. Who am I? Who are we? What does it mean to be human? Who determines who, I, who or what, I suppose, in terms of the way the question goes, determines who I am and what I'm supposed to be? And those questions always, at least should, lead to one particular question. Where do we come from? Because knowing where we come from tells us a lot about who we are and what we're meant for. Now the word Genesis is a Greek word. I mean, it's just, it, it just is a Greek word that means beginnings. And the book before us, as we start it today, is about beginnings. It's about origins. It's about our origins. And that message deeply informs who we are. And as we study Genesis, I want us to see that this whole book is about our communion with God and how God is working, how He made us for that communion, how we ruptured that communion, and how He is working to restore that communion to sinners by grace. Now, to get through this book well, I I imagine that we're going to need to chop it into some sections uh, to see how that main theme comes across to us in in distinct ways. This this is a long uh, book. Um, This isn't a a month-long study by any means. We have some some ways to go before us. And our first stretch in the first two chapters of Genesis, where we will will camp in these two, we will pick up pace as we go along, but we're going to camp in these first two chapters for a number of weeks. And, And what I hope we see as we reflect on this material is how this message at the outset is stating about that theme of communion with God, that God created us for that communion. I mean, in as much as chapters 3 to 11 demonstrate that we ruptured that communion, these first two chapters show God made us for it. Now the thing is, we tend to bring certain questions to this text about Debates that, that interest us in the modern period. And as, as important as, as those questions may be, there are countless other resources to help you think about 
debates about Genesis and science, how long these days are, that sort of thing. How old the earth is. Uh, my job as your pastor, as, as, as good and necessary as those questions may be to answer, my job as your pastor is to speak to you good news. And to help you in your walk of discipleship. And so our focus in Genesis 1 and 2 is going to be on how God made us to know him and made us for fellowship with him and created us to have communion with him. That's where we're planting our flag as we march through this material. Now the the first part of this series then and intends to reclaim this portion of scripture as foremost and fundamentally about God and about the bearing that God intends to have his inspired word to have upon the way that we live with him. We should remember that God inspired the book of Genesis to have a pointed purpose of addressing his people as we relate to him. And even as the first few verses of Genesis, of the Bible, are loaded with theological riches that tell us about God and what it means to be his creatures, we need to to live there at least for a little while. And so the main point, the main point today, is that we should be filled with hope and wonder when we contemplate God. We should be filled with hope and wonder when we contemplate God. And that may sound really similar to last week's main point. And it is because Psalm 8 was an exercise in contemplating God. From his creation. And so we're just thinking about the other side of that this morning. And so our three points today are Genesis is about God. God is different than us. And God's timeless dependability. So first, let's think together about Genesis is about God. I, I think it's a fundamental thing that we have to remind ourselves and remember that God inspired Genesis primarily for his people's benefit. This, this book is, is aimed to speak to us who belong to the Lord and to be a blessing that we might know the Lord. And so from the outset, we should recognize a few things that ought to focus how we think about this book. First, first, the traditional and the conservative position, which I hold, (laughs) uh, is that Moses was the fundamental author of Genesis to Deuteronomy. I mean, I say fundamental, I mean, it's it's on, at least at the end of Deuteronomy there, it's unlikely that he recorded his own death scene. Um, So Joshua probably added at least that that little bit for us. But Moses was the fundamental author 
of Genesis to Deuteronomy. If the, the Exodus event occurred around 1500 BC, then Moses wrote Genesis and his other four books you know, shortly after, shortly around that time, as God, after God led his people out of Egypt and covenanted with them at Mount Sinai. Now, that, the, the dating of this book may not at first seem terribly interesting, but it is significant. If we, if we think about the implications of, of that, that idea that, that this book came to us uh, through the hand, I mean the inspired hand, of, of a person whose name we know in a time that we can date, as God brought Israel out of slavery, he inspired this book to give them, his covenant people, the historical background, the, the prologue to the relationship that he was formalizing with them at Sinai. In other words, to put this sort of more directly, more forcefully, God inspired this book as an address to his covenant people to tell them about life with him. That's where its center of gravity is, has to be. This book is an address to God's covenant people about how they will live with him. And so Genesis is about knowing who God is and and what his relationship with his covenant people is supposed to be, even from from our first moments when he made us. He's telling uh, his covenant people at Sinai what his relationship was like with his covenant people when he made Adam and Eve and put them in the garden. And what his covenant relationship was like when he met Abraham and called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. It is about life with God. And God's purpose for this book wasn't then first and most pointedly about an address to the whole world. Nor even the scientific community at large. Although this this book records the beginning of the world, it was not written at the beginning of the world. Moses, I mean, we have dates for Moses, whom we think, I mean, whom we, we have good reasons to think, wrote this book under the Spirit's inspiration. This book was written when God taught his covenant people about how he made the world. And that, that entails two applications of everything in this book. First, and, and perhaps, you know, you can stretch these to be about more than just Genesis, but, but it tells us something significant about Genesis. Given, given what modern people have found most interesting about Genesis's op- opening narratives, uh, we can easily overlook, I mean, as good as it might be to pursue those questions and topics, uh, we can still easily overlook that it speaks to us about how we are supposed to live with God. We too readily think that, that Genesis 1 is, is primarily a rebuttal to what people out there think. And, and this book, on the other hand, I mean, when, we, when we realize what it is, 
was meant to have real bearing upon your life as a member of God's covenant community as you walk before God. And that means, and here's the thing, I mean, regardless of what question we're asking uh, about various issues that have occupied our minds here, it, it does mean that if we turn this book, even its first chapters, uh, into an argument with the outside world, more than, as, more than an address to us as members of God's covenant people, then we have missed if not distorted, the fundamental meaning of God's word in these chapters. Now, there may be the secondary uh, uses, but we're talking about fundamental use here. Regardless of of the implications of things going on here that that may well be very valid as as we try to relate this text to wider issues. This text is foremost a call to you to know more about your relationship with your covenant Lord. And so our study of this book cannot focus primarily on, at least in this setting, on arguing with the outside world if we are meant to be faithful to God's intended purpose for this text. So, first application. Second, second application. Since this book addresses God's covenant people about our relationship with God, our, our study, even in the first chapters of this book, has to focus on God himself and our relationship with him. Um, So to put a finer point on that, on this application, if if our attention, if our attention as we study Genesis is at all more on the creation rather than the creator, We've missed it. We, we've, we've not caught what God is, is fundamentally, primarily, foremost communicating in this portion of his word. So, so to highlight, I mean, we, just to put that same idea a different way, to highlight the world more than to highlight God in this portion of God's word is to mix up the priorities. The primary point, the primary, which is, which is to say nothing about the, the secondary things that we can consider. The primary point in these chapters, I mean, because I, I, I imagine as I say some of these things, people might be thinking, yeah, but I really want to know about like how long these days are. What does it, it tell us about the age of the... I mean, but here's the thing. Here's the, cause if we start to think that what I just said means we're going to start talking about something less exciting, 
That's exactly why I'm making the point. Because the primary point in these chapters is about something far more exciting than rocks, geosystems, and their age. These chapters are about God and his majesty and how he made us to see those things and have a relationship with him. Why do I care about a rock? So the big takeaway, the big takeaway is that you need to read Genesis like it matters for everyday life as a Christian before God. This book is not fodder for debate, but God's word to speak to his people. And we see then that Genesis is about God, which means we have to read this book for how God intended it to address his covenant people. And that brings us to our second point. God is different than us. God is different than us. Uh, Even scripture's first two verses contain arguably some of the most exciting theology imaginable. Uh, So let's let's zero in on on verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1 so that we might might learn. I mean, I think this is going to make the point that that I've I've just spent the first point trying to make. Because here we learn some essential truths about our God that are embedded even in the first words that he gives to us. In the beginning, let me, let me kind of gloss. I, th- I, think it, I think that might be better, and, I'll, and that'll become clear as we get. At the beginning, because there was no time before God made all this stuff. At the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was without form and void. And the darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And people have explained this seemingly, seemingly simple but amazingly rich statement in a few different ways. So some are going to say, I mean, and this is, I mean, there are plenty of books about Genesis. Uh, and, and it may be that you might pick up more than one. And so some are claiming that, that verse 1 is, is a summary of everything else that happens in the chapter. So, it, so it's, a, it's an overture of, of the rest of the events, the creation events, uh, covering, you know, summing up everything that happens until uh, or through chapter 2, verse 3. Now, supposedly, it's an overview or an overture of everything that occurs throughout the chapter. And and this understanding would entail that um, this first statement of God's creation is not a distinct event. It's kind of the heading in this outlook. And and one of the implications there... is that most who take this view acknowledge that it at least suggests, implies, that Genesis doesn't, if you hold this view, uh, it would suggest that Genesis doesn't tell us how 
the material of creation came to be. Right? Because the story would actually start there at verse 3, and it's, and it's just there. And, and what we've heard in verses 1 to 2 is, is summarizing the rest of the, these events. Um, and, and the further implication of that is that maybe God was interacting with some pre-existent stuff. Maybe even eternal physical matter. You know, the, the, the raw material of the universe was just there and God came upon it to start working with it. Um, and even, even though this view, I, I mean, not everybody takes it, even, not everybody who holds that understanding takes it to those implications because there's a lot of conservatives who have even adopted this and it's become popular. I don't think that that is the most helpful uh, or best fitting understanding, even of, even of the grammar in the Hebrew. Um, the, other, the other way of taking that, the, the reason I give that, I, do, I, I tend not to give you the wrong answers uh, very often in sermons, but, but people think about these issues a lot, and, and it would not surprise me if, if a good number of you read about Genesis. And so I'm trying to, trying to equip you to understand what you may read. The other major interpretation, which I think is the correct one, is that verse 1 was the, the first distinct act that God performed in making the universe. And it, and it took place before the rest of the narrative gets going at verse 3 with the, the events of day 1. And so, verse 1 and 2 occur emphatically before day 1 of creation in verse 3 and tells us that God made the physical stuff of the universe that he developed across these days of creation. And so, God's first creative act there where he made the heavens and the earth, the the spiritual and physical contours of, of everything that, that is created, right? that is loaded with theological richness. Now, it's actually, I mean, you, you think that that might signal something complicated is coming. Um, but the most critical thing that verse 1 signals for us is that God is essentially different than you. And that, that's not actually that complicated. It can become complicated the longer you think about it. But the nugget is God is essentially different from you. There is a fundamental distinction between the creation and the creator. God is different and distinct from the universe and everything in it. He made it. Far from, far from being some sort of arcane philosophical point, the, this truth underscores God's supreme majesty. This is the stuff that kicks off Psalm 8. 
God, God did not need anything to create the universe. God created all the things that exist at the creaturely level out of nothing. There wasn't anything except God, and then God made everything else by speaking. And that phrase, out of nothing, is something that you should write on your heart and and bang it into your brain. God created out of nothing. I mean, you should memorize that phrase, out of nothing. And I'm repeating this phrase, out of nothing, over and over, because I'm hoping it forces you never to forget it. Now, the reason why, the reason why this phrase, out of nothing, is so important is because this phrase distinguishes the Christian worldview from all the others. All the arguments that you can have with people, all the apologetic discussions, all of the uh, things that you might discuss with family, friends, and neighbors about God's existence and why they ought to believe in him, This is a fundamental dividing point between the way that we look at creation and the way that unbelievers, anyone who doesn't share the Christian worldview, think about everything that exists. I mean, what you think of the other aspects of the creation story might have some bearing upon the way that Christians need to look at the world, but verses 1 and 2 are fundamental in thinking Christianly about the origins of the universe. And other scripture, I mean, right, other, other scripture brings home that God created out of nothing. Out of nothing. Hebrews 11.3. By faith we understand, I mean, that's, that, that in itself signals why this is a, a, a Christian tenet. By faith we understand. It's it's not something we figure out. It's God has told us that he brought all the physical stuff into existence. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So it wasn't there before God made it. That's the point of Hebrews. Romans 4.17 As it is written, I have made you, he's talking about Abraham, uh, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. I just, I actually don't know how to land the point. I mean, I should have just read you Romans 4 and said, Paul said it. There's the end. Uh, The things that didn't exist, that exist now, God made them out of nothing. Now, how does does this actually, like, help? Why, Why does this distinguish the way that we think about Reality. Way back in Greek philosophy, 
and in modern science is the assumption that the universe's physical material is eternal. That it was always there, somehow. I mean, so they've just replaced the eternal God who made the universe with the stuff of the universe. And the belief is that the stuff that composes our, our universe has just always been there. And perhaps it looked different. Perhaps it's been through various cycles. But paganism and modernity think that the physical parts of creation are eternal. And that presupposition of unbelieving philosophy and science um, is used to deny God's existence. The universe is eternal, and so we don't need the eternal God to explain anything. And so they believe matter, physical matter, is eternal, and nothing, and then here's the, <coughs> the continuation that, that they infer from the presupposition, nothing else exists except physical matter. So if I can't find it in the physical universe, it's not real. And of course that's not going to happen with God, because he's not part of the physical universe. And that that tells us something important, though. Because science that reasons from things in the physical universe to God's non-existence has drastically overstepped its bounds, has crossed the boundaries of its remit. Science's job is to investigate the natural realm through repeatable, observable experiments. I can do it. I can do it over and over and over, and people can watch me do it. That's, That's the verification test. And it's supposed to be about things in the natural realm. And God isn't contained. God is not comprehended in nature. He is supernatural. He transcends nature. He made the material universe and he enters into it, but he does not exist in the same way as it. He exists as creator, whereas we exist as creature. And there is no repeatable, observable experiment that can prove that God isn't there. That's the fundamental question. What can you do over and over and over that I can watch you do that demonstrates God isn't there? I mean, there is no answer to that. Foremost... That is the way it is because scientific experimentation cannot go past the bounds of nature. Its, it's remit of authority is the things that are created. It is flawed reasoning to think that only that which exists like we do exists at all. And so... Scripture teaches us that God created out of nothing. 
There's a lot of details there, I know, but there's the payoff. This separates the way that we think about all things. God was there, and then he made all the other stuff. The universe, the universe began at some point. That's why I say that preposition at the beginning of Genesis might be but at the beginning. At the beginning, God made the physical universe. The universe began and God was the one who made it. God, therefore, stands outside the physical universe and can't be subject to our natural investigation as if you can overturn a rock and then find God. And this is exactly, this is exactly why God has spoken to his people. Because he is bridging that gap to inform us about himself. This is why he has spoken to his people climactically in the sun and markedly in the scriptures. What we could not investigate, God has told us. God is different than us. But we ought to rejoice that he has revealed himself to us. And that brings us to our final point. God's timeless dependability. Now there's one other massive implication of um, verses 1 and 2. Not only did God create the physical matter, the material of the universe, God also created time. Verses 1 and 2 tell us about when God created time and space. We creatures are bound by the ticking away of moments. And some days we feel that more than others. But that didn't, the moments didn't start ticking until God made the universe. There is no passing of moments. There is no succession of seconds in God's being. So imagine you're at a football stadium, right? Before the game begins, uh, and the scoreboard has a timer on it to keep track of the, the progression of time during the game. But the game hasn't started yet. And so right now, you, you've... You've got that frozen number. The timer isn't ticking. It's not moving. And as you look at the field prior to the game start, you know that that time isn't officially passing on the field. The clock is frozen for everything happening in the stadium. And moreover, that clock only progresses, it only moves forward in reference to what happens in that stadium. That's its, its you know, area where moments pass. And the point of, of the illustration there, to think about how you know, the moments don't start for this, this field, this stadium, is that 
the, the timer of reality, the passing of moments for the universe, applies only to created things. That timer in the stadium doesn't pertain to things outside of it. And the timer of the universe doesn't pertain to things outside of it either. Namely, God himself. The universal timer didn't start counting moments until God made the universe. There was no such, to put it, I guess, most mind-bendingly, if I haven't already, there was no such thing as time before Genesis 1.1. Now again, I'm not just trying to give you heavy ideas. This has massive relevance for your life. This is so significant. God does not experience the passing of moments. He does not enter or pass through seasons. And he does not age. In, in really technical terms, uh, God alone is eternal, meaning that he doesn't experience time at all. We are everlasting. I mean, our souls are everlasting, but we're not a, eternal in the sense of we will, because we will always be da- bound by time, where God doesn't even know or doesn't experience the passing of moments. God is not everlasting in the sense we are, he's eternal. He's different from us. No time passes for God. And and that should really matter to you. That that should really matter to you. God, God doesn't experience time, which means he does not experience change. Time is necessary for change. And because God does not experience time, he does not change. And that, that is the sure foundation of your hope and your ability to trust God. As dense as that may has seemed in the lead up, that's the roots on everything you need to know you trust, you can trust God, that he is dependable. It's become popular even in our circles to to reject this doctrine called God's impassibility which which teaches right I'm not going to throw those at you and not tell you what this doctrine of God's impassibility teaches us that that God is not subject to emotional change He, he doesn't we don't do stuff that causes his feelings to shift right but that that is immensely good news that God does I understand why we don't like because emotions are the the key factor of our day and age they they control everything in the way that our culture thinks about things but it is immensely good news that God does not shift in his feelings Because it means that God's love for you is immutable. You cannot even put a a dent in it. Because God will not change his emotional disposition toward you. He can't. 
It's beyond his nature to do. God will not change his mind about loving you because James 1.17 says, God does not change like shifting shadows. God's eternality and unchangingness means that when God issued the gospel promise to Abraham that those who trust in his promises by faith will be rescued, it is impossible for that promise ever to be overturned. It cannot be done because God cannot change. That God creates means in a very obvious way that you are not God. God is very different from and supreme to us. But that should fill us with hope and wonder. It should fill us with hope and wonder because where else could we turn? Where else could we ever run to find this sort of security and dependability? You'll not hear a whiff of that kind of thing in the world around you. It changes on a whim. But your God never changes. The God who is beyond us has voluntarily condescended to know us and to make us his people. And sinners need that inestimable comfort that God's promises of salvation, even as promised in the direct moments after the fall, formalized by covenant to Abraham and fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, those promises are guaranteed. God's transcendent and immutable nature guarantees that he will always give his love to his people. You want to know why God can never stop loving you? Because he never began. It always was. And that comes to bear at the cross. Jesus' death was the culmination of God's unchanging love for you. Being the way that God would reconcile sinners to himself. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the historical expression of God's eternal commitment to you. For all believers, Jesus came to save you because God could never change his stance of love for all his people. Let's pray.